sure by now everybody's heard the big news. Uh, Ford is re-releasing the Ford Bronco. So I think you've had to hear by now. Uh, interesting enough, true story, and have you heard, they had to change the date that they were going to re-release the Ford Bronco. This is the statement that they put out. So Ford says this, we are sensitive and respectful to some concern raised previously about the date, which was purely coincidental. So now if you heard the coincidence, the Ford Bronco was going to be released on OJ's birthday. <laughs> love it. I'd love to be in that meeting. Uh, hey, uh, boss, Ford's grandson, whoever you are, <laughs> you remember OJ, right? Woo, all right. So they literally had to change the date of when the Ford Bronco was going to get released. So if that reference is kind of lost on you, let me introduce you to the most famous Ford Bronco and most famous Ford Bronco driver of all time, OJ. I was looking up pictures of this. I mean, I don't know if you remember the insanity. I mean, every channel just the, the Ford Bronco chase. People are lining overpasses, chanting like, yeah, and he's driving underneath. And that led to the trial of the century. I mean, if you were around, you remember just how crazy this trial was. I mean, Judge Ito, Johnny Cochran up there, man, if the glove doesn't fit, you must quit. You know, I mean, every channel covering this, right? And the reason I'm talking about OJ this morning, one, that's funny that that fell on his birthday. Two, why was this trial such a big deal? Part of it, right, was it was OJ, and he's this big celebrity. So I'm talking about that because now, as Jesus has been arrested, where we find ourselves in Luke is the trial of Jesus. I mean, you think OJ's trial was a big deal because he was a football star. This is the Son of God. The Messiah about to go on trial. This isn't the trial of the century. I mean, this is the trial of the millennium or whatever is above that, the millionia. I don't know how to say that if that's a word. But think how crazy that is. God is about to go on trial and we get to get a peek into what that was like. And sadly, like many cases and like many trials, it's not really about seeking the truth. And we're going to find that quickly. So we're going to dive in. We're going to be in Luke 22. If you're reading in your own Bible or reading at home, but I will put it up on the screen. We're going to pick it up in verse 63. And it's a little bit longer. We're going to go ahead and just read the whole trial of Christ. So this is Luke 22, picking it up in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. 
Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And they all cried together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. And the third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I would therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You know, our courts have a little bit of a backlog. Their courts did not have this trouble. OJ's trial went for 134 days. Jesus was arrested, tried, and sentenced in a day. Man, you see how crazy kind of this trial was. Let me fill in a couple of the kind of gaps for you if you're unaware. So the Jews, I mean, they've been waiting all throughout the gospel for their time so they can get Jesus arrested and killed. So they try him. Okay, he's guilty of blasphemy. I mean, you've heard it from his own lips. But you ever ask yourself the question, why didn't they just execute him right there? One thing you've got to understand that the Jewish people, Israel, was under Roman rule. And so Rome allowed them to try cases, but not capital cases. If you wanted somebody executed, you had to take it to Rome. Rome had to be the one to do it. So that's the only reason they get Pilate involved. But did you catch this? And again, they're tipping their hand. When it was with the Jewish priests, it was a religious charge. It was one of blasphemy claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, claiming to be the Son of God. Well, Rome doesn't care about that. So now when they're before Pilate, it's a political reason. He's causing riots. He's stirring up an insurrection. And then you see Pilate go back and forth with Herod. 
We'll see that today, right? You know, like sometimes people be, you know, should they be extradited? Where should they be tried? That's what's happening here. Oh, he's Galilean. I'll make Herod deal with it so he can wash his hands of it. Herod sends him back, and then you have this negotiation. Pilate is trying to get Jesus off. One commentator said, Pilate did everything he can to discharge Christ short of discharging Christ. It's almost comical to me, too. I mean, Jesus is innocent. That is clear all throughout. I mean, seven times in this passage alone, you know, the innocence of Jesus is asserted. And Pilate's not trying to crucify him. But you see how good he is with just beating him? You know, I mean, he's innocent. Let me beat him for you, and we'll call it square. You know, no, kill him. You know, I want him, I want his death. How about I just take him to an inch of his life, and then we're good, you know? But anyway, he is willing to beat him, but finally they don't relent. And so Pilate does, because the, the crowd is getting stirred up, and he hands him over to be crucified. You know the one thing that this trial got right? The one thing that this trial got right in seeking truth, it asked the right question that the Jewish leaders asked. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? That's what he's on trial for. Not for a crime. It was for claiming to be the Son of God, the Christ. Maybe you're like me. Like Growing up, you just thought like Christ was his last name. Like Jesus in the phone books was like under Christ Jesus and we went to a restaurant, you know, it's like, you know, Dufresne, party of two, Christ, party of three, you know, the Trinity, Father three, that's why I went three there. It's a pastor joke, just move on. You get the point. His name wasn't Christ, wasn't his last name, that was his title of the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's important, that wasn't missed on them. When Jesus responded and saying, I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father, That was a claim of deity that wasn't lost on them. That's when they came back and said, are you telling me you're the son of God? And some people twist that to try to lower Jesus' status. Like, no, he's just kind of saying, like, we're all sons of God, right? Like, we're all children of God. Like, he wasn't saying, like, oh, yes, I'm a child of God. He was saying, like, I'm the son of God. Not like, oh, like, ah. Like, that was going to be the title of my message. Not like, yeah, like, yeah. Because that was the point. He's, he was saying, I'm the son of God, and they didn't miss it. So as you think of your journey of truth, you know, do you, have you looked at Jesus and asked the right question? Is he really the son of God? I'm amazed how much throughout Jesus' trial, he just responded in silence. I mean, here's Jesus, unjustly accused of a crime. Even when we talk about injustice in our culture, man, if you've ever been that place, you've been wrongfully accused and you've been innocent, you're in good company. That's Jesus here, wrongfully accused. But I'm amazed how confident Jesus is to be silent against their charges. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you feel like you've sought God in your life and you've got nothing but silence. You ever been in that place? I know I've been in that place where I've wanted to hear from God and I feel like God is being silent. Here's where I want to spend our time this morning. I want you to consider how you approach God is going to impact how you experience God. Like your posture, the way that you seek after God is going to determine how much you experience God. All right? How you approach him is going to impact how you experience and hear from him. And that's what I want to do. I want to look at all the different people that come across Jesus in his trial. Look at their different approaches. 
Because how you approach God is going to impact how you experience him. So first, I want to look at the soldiers. So this is Jesus arrested, and you see kind of the religious leader soldiers, and then Herod's soldiers. How did they, you know, approach Jesus? They're the ones just mocking him out of the gate. I mean, just totally making fun of him, like the big brother move, like quit hitting yourself, quit hitting yourself. You remember that one classic, right? You know, I mean, so here they are, like just totally mocking him. And this isn't a holy desire, but there's a part of me wants to be next to those guys on the judgment seat when they stand before Jesus. The guys that blindfolded him and said, oh, why don't you guess who's hitting you? Can you imagine that guy when he stands before Jesus? And again, I always picture Jesus as more sassy than he is, so sift that out. But that dude comes before Jesus. If I'm Jesus, like, bro, I knew who was hitting me. (laughs) He's like, oh, no. (laughs) This isn't going to go well. Like, I mean, they're mocking him. How did they approach Jesus? They never asked the question. They never searched for what is true. I mean, they were just kind of good soldiers doing their job. They were handed a prisoner. They treated him like a prisoner. I mean, right out of the gates, they mock him and never actually stop to ask the question, is this guy really the son of God? And I want to challenge you with that. Because again, so many of these different approaches, it is easier than we realize to approach Jesus like the soldiers. And that can be whether you're in the church or out of the church. Even if you are raised in the church, let me ask you this question. Have you ever truly sought the truth? Like for yourself, not just when I was raised in the church, I always believed, like actually looked at Jesus and gone, is he really who he says he is? That's actually probably a good you know, indicator for you. If you've ever said something like that, well, I've always believed. I've always been a Christian. You might be more in danger of this than you realize, that you never really believed the truth. It doesn't work that way. Like, no kid, you know, as a baby just believes that. Like, Dad, I wanted to let you know I prefer Pampers, and I looked into the claims of the Messiah. It's true. I believe. I see so many parents, when their kids begin to doubt their faith, they wig out. No judgment. I will as well. But I always encourage those parents, listen. If your kid is questioning their faith, maybe they're to that point where they're actually trying to embrace it as themselves. If you've never questioned your faith, I would ask you, have you ever really embraced your faith as your own? Or are you just a soldier? And again, maybe you weren't raised in the church and you were just told Jesus was just another good teacher and you never really looked into it. And of course, Jesus doesn't respond to them. Have you ever really looked at Christ for yourself? So that's the soldiers. Next up, let's look at the religious leaders. These are the guys that were trying to get Christ, you know, from the second he stepped on the scene. Now, how did these guys, as we're looking at the trial of Christ, how did they approach Jesus? How did they approach him in this trial? It was very clear they predetermined the truth. I mean, you see that in their interaction with Jesus. Hey, tell us, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? What did Jesus respond? It doesn't matter what I tell you. You're not going to believe me. You've already decided my guilt. It doesn't matter. And then, you know, once he affirms to be the son of God, the Messiah, they say, that's blasphemy. I want you to stop and think for a second. Is it blasphemy to say you're the Messiah? 
Is it blasphemy to say you're the son of God? Something should ping in your mind. Only if you're not the Messiah. You know who it isn't blasphemy to say I'm the Messiah? The Messiah! Like, I mean, they never stop to ask, okay, maybe it is really true. I mean, they never look at the claim. They decided that he's guilty and they're going to kill him. So I want you to think, are you guilty of doing this as you have approached Christ? Have you put Christ in a box and you never really examined who he is and you predetermined that? What does that look like today? Maybe I just say this to you. I mean, the, Christ, the, the claim of Christ that he is the son of God, the exclusive claim that he made where Jesus said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Do you hear that and instantly go, well, I don't believe that. I mean, all, it doesn't matter. You just got to believe something. All religions kind of are the same, you know, and you have predetermined that Jesus is just a good teacher like, you know, Muhammad, like Buddha. He's a spiritual leader that God gave some insight, and you've predetermined that's who Jesus is. If that's how you've approached Christ, where that's off the table, that he really is the son of God, and it's off the table that this really is God in the flesh, providing the one way to him, don't be surprised like these leaders where Jesus doesn't respond and give you what you want. So whether you never searched or like the religious leaders, as you've kind of gone to church and you've listened to nice sermons like this, you have already decided who Jesus is to you. You may not experience him and hear from him the way you're hoping. So another approach to Christ we see in Herod. So Herod, he's kind of the, you know, Pilate sends him to Herod. And what did Herod say? Do you remember? He's kind of excited. Because at this point, remember like OJ's trial, it's like a big deal. Like Jesus, word is spreading about Jesus and all the miracles he's doing. So Herod is actually excited to see one of Jesus' miracles. And so he's excited for that. And I'm amazed again at Jesus' patience throughout this. Like if I'm Jesus and somebody's blindfolding me and smacking me, like lightning bolts are flying. You know, and he, you know, let me see a sign, prove yourself. I'm so insecure, I'd be proving myself like crazy. Like, give me that water. Pinot Grigio, baby. Like, you're calling me, I'm the Messiah. You got a pool, I'd be doing a TikTok dance right on the pool outside. Like, you want to see a sign, that's a sign. And gee, I'm sorry, I, I took it too far. I apologize, let's reel it back. And here he is, show me a sign. It would save his life to do one miracle at that moment. Silent. What was Herod's? approach to Jesus. He selfishly wanted to be entertained by him. So in seeking what is true, seeing what is true about Jesus, what approach did he take? Show me something. His approach was the God of the universe. He wanted, you know, to meet God on his terms as opposed to Herod going on God's terms. I mean, how crazy is that? Like, I go to God and tell him, jump, and when he doesn't say how high, I don't believe in him. Like, understand, again, it's easy to throw stones, how easy it is to do this. Have you ever said or heard something like this? God, you heal this person. You heal my dad. I'll believe in you. I'll follow you for the rest of my life. 
God, you keep my parents together and then I'll know you're real and I'll follow you forever. How different is that than Herod? God, you do what I want you to do. You give me my miracle and then I'll follow you. I mean, step back from that logic. If God doesn't do what I tell God to do, God doesn't exist. I don't know that that's a sound approach to coming before God. Have you ever considered the fact that maybe the God of the universe, that you should humble yourself before him and meet him on his terms, not demanding that God meets you on yours. But yet, I want God to do the miracle that I want from him, and when he doesn't, I doubt he's there. What if we humbled ourselves like we just sang and said, okay, God, I want to know you more. Reveal yourself to me, not with all these conditions that I've put for you, all these hoops that I want you to jump through. And I don't mean it to minimize your pain. God cares about your pain. And amazingly, graciously, God meets us where we are. But I want to encourage you in your posture before him. And you're seeking God. Are you just selfishly wanting to be entertained by God and him to do your will? Are you willing to let go of all those conditions and say, okay, God, even if you don't do these things I want you to do, reveal yourself to me. I humble myself before you. We're pretty in danger oftentimes of being like Herod, demanding God does what we want as opposed to approaching him. Next, let's look at Pilate. So Pilate is kind of the one overseeing Kind of mostly, he's kind of the judge in the courtroom, right? He's the one kind of overseeing the trial. Who remember, who, raise your hand if you have seen The Passion of the Christ, right? Big movie, famous movie. I want you, I remember seeing it. Like, I remember where I was, like how I was feeling. I remember like gripping the handrails. If you remember where you were when you first saw it, raise your hand, right? Like, I remember that moment. Coming out of the passion of the Christ, I mean, one thing that really stuck with me, I was amazed how much I identified with one character. I mean, watching that, I totally just identified with Jesus. I did not. That was not the case. It was actually Pilate, which is scary when you're identifying with the tyrant. But here's why. Let me explain to you why watching that, I so identified with Pilate. Think of this story. Now, again, these are wicked men. But even the most wicked men can recognize the goodness of Christ. So here's Pilate trying to let Jesus go. He's doing everything he can so Jesus can beat this charge. But how, did, in the end, did he approach Jesus? He was unwilling to live in light of the truth that he had discovered. See, he kind of got to the place where he kind of knew Jesus, but what happened in Pilate's story? The crowd started to get rowdy. You know what that means? It was going to start to get bad for Pilate. If he lets Jesus go, they riot, and then Pilate's now in trouble for not squelching the riot. If he doesn't, you know, I mean, you think of the situation, the choice he had, and what was the ultimate choice? Pilate was going to choose himself, or Jesus. And here's the thing, he didn't mind Jesus. 
He knew there was something in the other gospel. Pilate's wife has a dream about Jesus. And so Pilate's wife is warning Pilate, don't you touch that man. You stay away from him. There's something different. So here he knows Jesus is innocent. He knows there's something special about Jesus. But in the end, when he had to choose between doing right by Jesus in the truth and choosing his own self and self-preservation, he chose himself. And that's where I relate to, to Pilate. Because, yeah, even growing up, I don't mind Jesus, and maybe you don't. You like Jesus, but you know what truth does? It puts you in an either-or camp. You can't go both and with Jesus. As they're talking about him being king. If he's king and son of God, then that means he's king of your life. It can't be, oh, I want to be kind of king of my own life and Jesus is king. It doesn't work that way. You have to choose. But some of you, as you seek truth, you're not willing to make the choice and the life changes necessary if you find Jesus to be who he says he is. And you never experience it because when it comes down to making sacrifices in your own life, changing the way you view relationships, your sexuality, take your pick. You like Jesus, but not enough to make him king, and I choose myself. So if you're in that camp, yeah, hey, you want to learn more about Jesus, you may even call yourself a Christian. But when it comes down to Jesus and his claims on your life, and when Jesus being king of your life, you back out, because you want to stay on the throne of your own life, you're in that camp of Pilate. And you wonder why you're not experiencing and hearing from God more in your life when you're not truly seeking him and willing to live in light of what he tells you about yourself and who he is. So that's Pilate. Is that how you have approached God? And if it is, maybe you never really sought Jesus or you had kind of these preconceived notions, or you weren't willing to change your life, don't be surprised like them if you experience the silence of God. So as we think of the courtroom of, of Jesus, where do you find yourself? It may be, like many of us, you probably relate to a lot of these, but as we're trying to determine what is true of Jesus, is he really the son of God? We'd be tempted to think we're the jury, right? You know, the religious leaders, they're the lawyers. Jesus is on trial. Pilate and Herod are the judges. And you think, okay, we're the jury sitting back to determine, is Jesus really God? How arrogant. How arrogant that we're going to sit here and I'm going to decide whether Jesus is really God. Listen to me. This is important. You don't determine truth. You only discover truth. You can't determine that. That's where Jesus says, look, whether you believe it or not, I'm sitting in the throne room of heaven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change. If you don't believe that, it doesn't make Jesus any less God. So don't let us dare think that we're going to sit back and we're going to determine whether Jesus is really real. He is who he says he is. What I want for you is for you to hear God, for you to experience him. And how do we do that? Not like those four camps that we met. If you want to experience God, you need to experience God like Barabbas did at the end. He truly experienced who Jesus was. So to experience God, you've got to find yourself in the right seat in the courtroom. 
you know who you are? You're not the jury. You're the one who should really be on trial. Like, you're the criminal. Remember, it was the same crime. Barabbas was inciting riots. That's what they accused Jesus of. Until you see yourself as the criminal and the sinful one before God and come before him humbly, don't be surprised if you don't hear from him. What did Barabbas end up experiencing? Barabbas was freed by the truth. Why? Because he was the one that was in the right seat. He was the criminal that Jesus ended up dying for. I want you to understand the beautiful picture. Like the gospel, we always preach to you. I don't know of a better example of this than in this situation of Barabbas. It is a perfect picture of the reality we experience when we humble ourselves before God. And say, God, I want to know you more, and I don't deserve it. When we approach God with humility, we experience God like none other. I'm going to teach you a fancy word to end. It's called double imputation. The first person I said that to is like, W, amputation? I got to cut off my arms to know Jesus? No, not amputation. Different word. Imputed. That means accredited to. This is what we always think of in the gospel. Our sins go on Jesus, right? Barabbas and Jesus, right? Barabbas is guilty. And Jesus ends up paying for Barabbas' sin. He ends up getting killed for the charge that was against Barabbas. So that's what we always celebrate often. And if you humbly come before God, God takes his sin and puts it on Jesus in the cross. But have you ever heard this phrase, the beauty is, is it's double imputation. Not just does Jesus get our sin, we get his righteousness and freedom. Do you see that picture with Barabbas? It's not just like you were a sinner and God said, okay, I'll forgive you, and you're starting at zero. God looks at you and sees Christ. I mean, how amazing to experience God that way as your heavenly father because Jesus took your place just like Barabbas. Not just did he pay your penalty on the cross, you experience his freedom. God looks at you. And he sees Jesus. You experience him as your father who loves you. But you got to approach him the right way. Not asking God to prove himself to you. Maybe you've never searched. So that's my encouragement to you. Would you come before God? We're going through Luke. Maybe you go through the gospel of John. And say, God, I've been raised in church my whole life, and I've never really asked the question, God, who are you really? And you read through it to see this isn't just another teacher. This really is God in the flesh. And do you have the courage to seek him? And when Jesus lays claim on your life, to live your life like that is true. If you humbly seek God as a sinner, not demanding of God, but falling at his feet, saying, God, reveal this kind of love to me. I think you'll hear from God in ways that you never have before. Will you pray with me? Father, would you help us? God, whether be convicted now to truly chase after you, 
I don't care how long we've been in church, but for the first time to really ask the question, are you really who you say you are? Give us the courage to live in light of the truth of what we find. God, that we would all really, as we just sang, pray that, God, I want to know you more. And God, would you reveal yourself, God, as you really are the one that took our place, that we experience your freedom. God, I'm, I can't live with your silence. God, would we hear from you on that journey? In Jesus' name, amen.